Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. For months, advocates for women's reproductive rights have expressed real fear that the new conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court might take steps to weaken or just outright overturn Roe v. Wade. And this week, the court seems to have justified an awful lot of those fears. The most restrictive abortion law in the country is now in effect in Texas, and the Supreme Court is refusing to enjoin that law. Now, despite the many ways it seems to contradict and defy what the court decided in 1973 and has upheld as precedent ever since, the court has decided just not to intervene in any way before this new law took effect. Now, advocates say Roe v. Wade's protections effectively do not exist in Texas. And many other states are likely to take a look at what's happening in the Lone Star State and follow suit with similar laws. The question, I think, is whether this is the beginning of the end of almost five decades of legal abortion across all 50 states. What are the legal implications, if that's so? And what will this mean for women, their health, and their lives going forward. That is where we begin the conversation today, several days after this controversy first popped its head up. Uh, And we've got a a great expert with us uh, today to help sort through what's happening in Texas, what's happening in Washington, and what we might be expecting uh, as we get further into this uh, into this issue, Melissa Murray is a professor of law at New York University, whose areas of expertise include constitutional law and reproductive rights and justice. She's also co-host of Strict Strict, Strict Scrutiny, which is a podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds us. Professor Murray, welcome to Detroit today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I. I think we have to start by talking about precisely what this law in Texas does. Can you bring our listeners uh, up to speed? Sure. So SB8, which is the law in Texas that was enacted in May, has two components, one substantive, the other procedural. The substantive component prohibits abortion at six weeks in pregnancy um, when a heartbeat can be detected. Um, But to be sure, six weeks is incredibly early in a pregnancy. Um, It's a time when many pregnant persons don't even realize that they are pregnant. And more importantly, for our purposes, it is the the six-week deadline is in contradiction with the Supreme Court's extant precedence on the abortion right, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which strictly prohibit any state from imposing a ban on abortion before what is known as viability, which is the point in a pregnancy when the fetus can survive outside of the uterus. And that point is typically much later in a pregnancy, around 23 or 24 weeks. So the six-week ban um, that Texas has enacted is on its face, obviously unconstitutional as a substantive matter, but here's where the procedural component of the law comes in. Um, So the second part of the law, which prohibits the abortion at six weeks and also prohibits any individual from actually helping a pregnant person to seek an abortion or providing an abortion. So it targets providers and anyone who would help a pregnant woman. But the procedural component is really interesting. Um, Typically, these laws 
are enacted by the state and they have to be enforced by state actors. So the state takes it upon themselves to enforce the law. But in this particular law, Texas has chosen to strip any state actors from the duty of enforcing it and instead has deputized private citizens instead to sue their fellow Texans who they believe or they know have either provided an abortion or have aided and abetted a pregnant person in seeking an abortion. Hmm. And and this feature of the law, this essentially deputizing in a way of uh, private citizens to enforce the law is the thing that, at least on the surface, appears to have tripped up the Supreme Court in its initial review of whether to enjoin the law. Uh, they, they seem to, to, to be saying that because it's private citizens and not government, uh, that they are powerless. At least five justices uh, agree that that's so. Yes, the majority of the court um, just, I guess, on Wednesday night, um, just before midnight, issued an opinion in this case. And it stated that they were a little tripped up by the procedural quirks of this law. Um, They noted that typically the Supreme Court at any federal court um, seeking to vindicate a constitutional right or to investigate whether a constitutional right has been violated would take up the question of whether a person has violated the law or a person is enforcing the law. They don't necessarily rule on the law themselves. They don't seek to enforce or not enforce the law itself. So the fact that Texas has essentially stripped the state from enforcing this law and instead has deputized private citizens and provided very strong incentives to private citizens to do so, um, there's a $10,000 bounty if an individual files a lawsuit against a fellow Texan for providing or aiding and abetting a pregnant person and seeking an abortion. And they also get to recover attorney's fees if they prevail on that claim. So there's a significant financial incentive to enforce this law for on private citizens. Um, but the court said that, you know, this was the part that was tricky. Um, you know, I think many of the justices, certainly the foreign dissent noted that this was patently unconstitutional or raised strong constitutional questions. But the procedural quirks made it hard to figure out whether this should be in federal court to be adjudicated or whether there was some other forum or some other procedure that needed to be followed before this law could formally be looked at by a reviewing court. And let's talk about how dangerous that kind of maneuver might be by the Texas legislature. By confounding the court in this way, doesn't that, I suppose, invite, first of all, I mean, a fair amount of uh, litigation chaos, I think, in, in the state of Texas. I mean, I can't imagine how all of this will be, will be managed. Uh, but also, doesn't it court the idea in other states that uh, maybe, you know, creating these kinds of vigilante style enforcement of uh, abortion laws is is the way to get around uh, the review that would uh, strike the law down on its merits uh, at, at this initial stage? Well, let's just be clear in passing a law with this kind of procedural mechanism in place. 
Texas was being very canny. I, I think everyone in Texas, anyone who has taken constitutional law, um, would know that a six-week ban is patently unconstitutional. Um, many states tried to pass these heartbeat bills. They are almost immediately enjoined by lower federal courts because they raise serious constitutional questions. Um, but in those cases, those laws are typically enforced by state actors. Um, Texas took this incredibly disingenuous and callous step of stripping the state out of it, deputizing private citizens because it wanted to avoid the prospect of federal review. It wanted to avoid the prospect that a lower federal court, like the district court here in Texas, um, from imposing an injunction that would prevent this law from going into effect. It wanted the law to go into effect and essentially what the Supreme Court did in that five to four decision on Wednesday night is recognizing this procedural quirk, likely knowing why the procedural quirk was undertaken, it credited it and it allowed Texas to get away with something that is a substantive matter it could not get away with under the Constitution. And so, yes, there will be strong incentives to other states who similarly have a dim view of abortion rights to pass laws that do exactly the same thing. And there are strong incentives, I think, for more progressive states who want to impose laws on other kinds of constitutional rights, like gun rights, for mm -hmm. example, to simply avoid the constitutional questions, avoid the prospect of federal review by simply having private citizens enforce the law on the state's behalf. Hmm. I'm talking with uh, Melissa Murray. She's a professor of law at New York University. Her expertise uh, includes constitutional law and reproductive rights and justice. She's also co-host of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the Supreme Court and legal culture that surrounds it. We're talking about what's going on in Texas uh, these days where the legislature has passed the nation's uh, strictest anti-abortion law also has, uh, in doing so, uh, created a mechanism for private citizens to enforce uh, that ban through civil courts, through civil actions. Uh, that seems to have tripped up the Supreme Court uh, in Washington uh, over uh, the question of whether it might be able to enjoin the law itself, which uh, which certainly seems to fly in the face of the, the precedent set by uh, Roe v. Wade in 1973 and uh, the, the subsequent uh, rulings uh, like Casey uh, in the early 1990s. Uh, we'd love to hear from you during this conversation uh, especially. Uh, what do you make of the Supreme Court's decision to allow this Texas law to take hold? Uh, also, give us a sense of where you think we're headed in the very long-standing uh, debate in this country over abortion uh, law. It's been a long, long and arduous uh, fight uh, on both sides. Uh, is this a turning point in that argument uh, to, the, to the point where you are fearful that uh, Roe v. Wade may not survive uh, as a court precedent? You have five justices uh, who said that they didn't feel like they could interfere uh, in the enforcement of this Texas law, that does not mean that they agree that the Texas law would survive on the merits in front of the justices. That's something that could come uh, at some point. Uh, but but give us a sense of what you think the balance looks like now between uh, abortion rights uh, and anti-abortion advocacy, both at the Supreme Court and in uh, in the states, uh, as always, the number here on the phones is three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You you can also go to the WDET Facebook page as always and put comments there, 
or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, uh, Professor Murray, you testified in the Senate against then-Judge Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the court a few years ago. I want to listen to some of what you said that day. Confirming Judge Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court would threaten people's ability to make fundamental personal decisions, including deciding whether to have an abortion. Reproductive rights are under serious threat in this country. What we have seen over the last two decades is a concerted strategy that would dismantle Roe versus Wade piecemeal, not in one fell swoop, but rather through a death by a thousand cuts. This nomination is the culmination of that decades-long effort to destroy Roe versus Wade incrementally without necessarily formally overruling it. So I'm curious how people responded to you at the time when you were saying these things about uh, about Brett Kavanaugh and his threat to or what you saw as his threat to reproductive uh, rights. And how do you think what you were saying then fits into what we're seeing this week uh, at the court, not just with uh, Justice Kavanaugh, but also with uh, the newest justice, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who, who was also somebody that uh, abortion rights advocates were very concerned uh, about when, when it came to questions of abortion. So I testified on the first Friday of that confirmation hearing process. And um, I will just say like, you know, I, I gave my testimony and it sort of, you know, it did what it did. But on Monday, Dr. Blasey Ford made her allegations against then judge now Justice Kavanaugh. And, you know, I, I think the whole question of reproductive rights kind of fell by the wayside in that nomination as other concerns came to the surface. So um, I, I will say in, in hearing that testimony again, and I haven't listened to it um, since I gave it, uh, I will say, I think I got something wrong. I spoke of just Justice Kavanaugh as perhaps having the effect of pushing the court toward accelerating what it had already been doing, which mm -hmm. was sort of chipping away at abortion rights, not necessarily taking on Roe in a frontal way. Um, and I think I got that wrong. Uh, I think what we have seen and certainly what we are going to see in this upcoming Supreme Court term is the, a court with a six to three conservative supermajority that is poised to not simply chip away at abortion rights incrementally, but actually to do away with Roe versus Wade entirely. Uh, the state of Mississippi is has a challenge before yes. the court to its 15-week abortion ban, and it has asked the, the court explicitly to reconsider and to overrule Roe versus Wade. So, you know, I, I made that statement in 2018, and, um, you know, here we are in 2021, and I, I don't think we're moving in an incremental posture. I, I think it is actually, um, the, the question has been called and, and it will certainly be answered, I think, in October. And if not October, there are other challenges that are coming down the pike before the court and there will be other opportunities to reconsider Roe. And I think that is by design. As you mentioned, Amy Coney Barrett was appointed to the court in October of 2020. Mm -hmm. I think we all knew based on her writings as an academic what her position on abortion was likely to be. And I think that was borne out on Wednesday night when she was part of that five justice majority to allow this law to go into effect. And you know, you keep saying that the court was tripped up 
by the procedural mechanism that Texas put in this law. And to say that they were tripped up suggests that there's something almost unconscious or inadvertent about what has happened. And, you know, I don't want to be overly cynical about this, but mm. I do think that five justices on the court certainly understood that there were real constitutional questions given the court's extant jurisprudence on mm -hmm. abortion. And whether you agree with that jurisprudence or not, that is the law that, that's on the books and it hasn't yet been overruled by the Supreme Court and nonetheless, recognizing those significant constitutional questions, five members of this court decided to allow that law to go into effect. Um, they allowed it to go into effect through its, its silence um, well up until they issued that decision on Wednesday night. And with that decision on Wednesday night, they credited this callous procedural move that will certainly incentivize other states to do the same thing. So I'm not sure that it's inadvertent. I mean, these are five people who have made their views of reproductive rights very clear mm -hmm. through their silence, um, through their writings, and now through their deeds on Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about what's going on in Texas, uh, what's going on at the Supreme Court, and what it all means for abortion rights in their future uh, nationwide. We will get to you on the phones. We are going to hear from Dr. Sarah Wallet, who is the Chief Medical Officer for Planned Parenthood of Michigan. She'll be up first when we get back. We'll also hear from Jim in Southfield, Nicholas in East Point, and Elena in Detroit. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter for comments there, and we'll try to include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Now, an update from WDET General Manager, Mary Zatina. Our summer has been a bit like yours, wet. WDET suffered severe damage in the late June storm. Wayne State University dried us out and is restoring our facility one soggy wall at a time. We lost some historic memorabilia and her central air. It's hot. We have bad hair days, but thank God it's radio. The WDET team remains on the air with only our spirits slightly dampened. We launched the Constitution Book Club, the Artist Next Door Project, an online guide to summer fun, and a voter's guide. And for the first time in a long time, you joined us at some fun events. Our news team has not wavered, bringing you the news no matter what. And the new transmitter is on the way. We are diligent. We are resilient. WDET is here for you. And thanks to your generosity, we always will be. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, Thanks for tuning in. My guest is Professor Melissa Murray, who is at New York University. Her areas of expertise include constitutional law and reproductive rights and justice. She's also co-host of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. We're talking about uh, this Texas law, extreme Texas law that bans abortions uh, pretty much across the board, uh, far beyond uh, the limits that have been respected for a long time by the Supreme Court precedent, Roe v. Wade uh, from 1973. Uh, the question is whether uh, this is 
the sort of signal that uh, Roe is on its way out in a more serious way, perhaps, than abortion rights advocates even feared uh, once we got the majority that we have right now on the Supreme Court. Uh, we we want to hear from you uh, about how you're feeling about what's going on in Texas, whether you're fearful about what might happen here in Michigan uh, as a result. Uh, we have a pretty conservative legislature as well. Um, also, what do you think about the future of abortion rights? Do you feel as though we are headed for uh, a significantly different era of regulation of abortion because we have a Supreme Court with a fairly staunch 6-3 conservative majority. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation uh, let's start with uh, Dr. Sarah Wallet, who is the Chief Medical Officer for Planned Parenthood of Michigan. Dr. Wallet, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So I want to put that question to you that I just put to the listeners here in Michigan. Uh, what are the implications of what's going on in Texas? And should abortion rights advocates be fearful that similar kinds of legislation um, might be in the offing here. Yep, thank you. The Texas ruling itself doesn't have an impact on Michigan, but what it does, it shines a spotlight at what's at risk in Michigan. Um, when I heard about the news uh, in Texas, these last few days have been very hard. I'm mad that it's clear that we are willing to play politics with the basic health care rights. Um, of pregnant people. And I'm really um, devastated about what's happening on the ground in Texas. I'm an abortion provider. I know what it must be like for those providers and patients there right now mm -hmm. to know that, you know, you have all of the medical training and skill and capability to help someone get the medical care they need and deserve, have to look them in the eye and say, I can't help you. This mm -hmm. is illegal. And I'm worried that what this really means for abortion access more broadly um, and for Michiganders. Mm. So I think when many people think of uh, women who are seeking, you know, abortions and other uh, reproductive health access, uh, they have a pretty narrow sense of who that person is, what situation that person's in, and what that person needs. I, I, I know it's much more complicated than that, but, but I, I would like for you to talk a little about the misconceptions, I guess, around, around all, of those, uh, all of those issues and dynamics. This is a very different subject and, um, and space in most people's lives, and I think many people believe it to be. Abortion is a very, very common medical procedure. About one in four women will have an abortion in their lifetime. We all know someone or love someone who has had an abortion. We just might not know it. Abortion is so highly stigmatized that people are afraid to talk about it, even to the people they care about. Mm. Um, real people, real Michiganders have abortions every day. Statistics show that those people are probably not um, the images that immediately come to mind. 
Most people who have abortions are already parents. They understand deeply what it means to be pregnant or to have a child. Um, Most people have a religious affiliation and have chosen to have an abortion um, in consultation with their faith leaders or their own faith. Mm -hmm. Um, People of all uh, walks of life, of all backgrounds, uh, have abortions as part of their basic health care needs. Um, I, I wonder what you are telling uh, the people who you work with, I guess, at this point, about uh, where we are, I guess, in in this, as I described it earlier, decades-long uh, national argument about uh, abortion rights, about reproductive health. Uh, do you anticipate, even before uh, things might change here in Michigan, uh, things that you might have to do differently or think differently about uh, because of the way things are headed? I'm lucky enough to understand that when we talk about abortion, it's not an argument about ideals and that it, this is a real life um, concrete thing for many, many people in Michigan. And um, those of us who work for Planned Parenthood of Michigan really get to see that every day as we support patients um, in their reproductive um, health decisions. Mm. Um, the, the threat is very real, and I want to reassure um, anyone listening right now that abortion is still legal and accessible um, in Michigan, and uh, I'm plan to work very hard to make sure it stays that way. Um, I think that I and many others are more committed now than ever uh, to make sure that Michiganders have access to the care that they need and deserve. Okay, uh, Dr. Sarah Wallet, the Chief Medical Officer for Planned Parenthood of Michigan. I'm really glad that uh, you called. Uh, the program uh, today to to share your perspective on this issue. Thanks so much for calling in. Thank you so much for having me and covering this really important issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I want to go back uh, to the phones in just a second and to our other to our other callers. Um, but before I do that, uh, Professor Murray, I want to uh, bring you back into the conversation and talk just a little about what comes next here, uh, on its face, this Texas law goes far beyond what uh, Roe v. Wade or Casey or any other uh, Supreme Court ruling seems to suggest is okay uh, with regard to abortion restrictions. And so the, 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 ultimately, it seems as though this will become a merits question, as they, as they, uh, as they say at the court, that um, would this law sort of fail uh, the test of precedent uh, in front of all nine justices. Um, I, I, I know that we're really premature in, in, um, in, in debating that, really, because it's going to take a while to, to, to get to that point. But, but I'd like you to forecast just a little of what you think this court, uh, with this 6-3 majority, would do with the merits in this case. 
I, I think we've already gotten some inclination of what the court might do with the merits um, if this were to come before them as a substantive question. Um, we've seen that other shadow docket cases, um, the court has had to at least perhaps sort of prognosticate a little bit about what they would do were this case to come up on its ordinary merits docket. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so, so these cases are, I think, a good bellwether of what the court might do. And as I said before, there's a 6-3 conservative supermajority on this court. Three of the conservative justices were appointed by Donald Trump, who as a presidential candidate vowed to appoint nominees to the court who would overrule Roe versus Wade, who would mm -hmm. be hostile to abortion rights. So we know that at some level, just by the vetting process, um, that three of these justices have evinced, if not skepticism, then hostility to abortion rights more generally. Uh, the order that was issued on Wednesday night that allowed the Texas law to go into effect said nothing about the merits. Um, although the dissenting opinions, three of the dissenting opinions, all mentioned that this Texas law violated in a very clear and obvious way extant Supreme Court precedents. Um, mm -hmm. The majority did not mention this at all. And I think by failing to mention the significant substantive constitutional issues, they are signaling that for them, perhaps, these may not be as significant as they might be for those on the other side. And so, you know, this case will certainly come up before the court at some point in the future. And if it doesn't, there is that 15-week Mississippi law that will be presented to the court in the upcoming term, which mm -hmm. begins in October. And, you know, that will be an opportunity for the court to really spell out where it is on abortion rights um, right now. And, and again, I think we know that the court has moved very far to the right and, and there is incredible skepticism, if not hostility, from some quarters of the court on this question. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's start with Jim in Southfield. Jim, what's on your mind? Yes. Hey, Jim. Go ahead, Jim. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry, I just had a broken connection. Yeah, I got a, I think, a rather simple question. Uh, how is it uh, what my neighbor does is of any interest to me? In other words, how do I have standing, or how is there a case in controversy here? Uh, that's what I'm trying to understand. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, Jim, and, and we should say that, uh, you know, standing is one of the most important kind of threshold questions in, in Supreme Court cases uh, about, you know, whether somebody has the right to, to bring an action uh, or a complaint uh, before the justices. But, but here, uh, with this uh, enabling of private citizens to file uh, civil suits against uh, someone for aiding in, in someone getting an abortion or getting an abortion, uh, there is also a question of why you should be able to do that. Uh, Professor Murray, can you talk about what, what the, I guess the legal standing is for, for, for that or the legal history around that question? Sure. And so, Jim, if you were a student in my constitutional law class, I, I would give you full marks for raising this question because <laughs> it's a terrific question. Um, you know, it is perhaps ironic that the Supreme Court in its order on Wednesday night um, noted that it had questions about whether the defendants that the reproductive rights groups had sued were the appropriate defendants and whether these individuals, in fact, would have standing to bring the suit. But I think there is a broader question, as Jim raises, about whether the private citizens who are deputized to tell on their neighbors 
are actually injured in a way that would confer on them standing to bring suit in federal court. And, you know, I, I think that question um, is by design. I, I think the Texas legislature does not want these cases to be adjudicated in federal court. I think they prefer to have them adjudicated in the Texas state courts. That perhaps is one way to funnel them there by making it harder to meet the standing requirements that are in federal courts. Uh, but it's it's a terrific question. Um, and just as a basic matter, how is the barista at Starbucks injured because you have driven a friend to a Planned Parenthood clinic to right. seek an abortion or you have provided money for someone who doesn't have it to get an abortion. I mean, I think these are real questions. And, you know, I think the purpose of this law was to dismantle any networks of support that pregnant people might have so that they are utterly isolated in their effort to seek an abortion. And, and that is the point. Hmm. Okay, uh, we're going to take another quick break. Uh, we're going to let Professor Melissa Murray of New York University go. And, and Professor, I am really grateful for uh, your time today. You've been really helpful uh, in getting our listeners to understand uh, what's going on and what it means. Thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. It was great to be in the Motor City, yeah. if only virtually. <laughs> yes. Uh, and up next, uh, we are going to welcome Dahlia Lithwick, uh, who covers the Supreme Court for Slate. Uh, and other judicial issues uh, to the program to talk more about uh, the legal implications of what the court is doing here, uh, what we might expect in the future. We'll also get to more of your calls. Nicholas in East Point, Elena in Detroit, we'll hear from you next as well. If you want to join them on the phones, as always, 313-577-1019 is the number here. 313-577-1019. You can also Go to the Facebook page here at WDET or to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Detroit Today on 1019 WDETM, Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're going to continue the conversation about the events in Texas around restrictive laws for reproductive rights and access to abortion, but I want to welcome someone in who can weigh in specifically on what this moment illustrates about this particular group of justices at the U.S. Supreme Court and what their inaction might signal about the path forward as it relates to Roe v. Wade. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate, where she also hosts the podcast Amicus. Dahlia, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me back. Yes, it's always great to have you here. So uh, this vote was five to four, with three Trump-appointed justices joining two other conservative justices. Um, let's talk about that split and what we what we may learn from uh, the way the justices voted. Uh, again, not in 
in a case that asked them whether this law was constitutional or not, or not but asked whether it could uh, it could take hold and be enforced while uh, presumably litigation uh, against it uh, unfolds. What what do we know? Well, the most probably important thing, and I'm sure you talked about it with Melissa Murray, is that it happened on the shadow docket, mm-hmm. which is to say it did not happen the way most Supreme Court decisions come down, right, where there is a trial on the merits, there is an opinion, it is then appealed, there is an appeals court opinion, <laughs> the case comes to the court, it is argued at oral argument, it is briefed, right? That's the regular order of things. That's largely how the court has always done business. Uh, There is an emergency docket. There always has been. But the court's been really reluctant to use it for big-ticket orders because they tend to issue rushed, careless opinions that could have huge consequences. So Mm -hmm. it's a practice that the court has frowned upon, doing things on uh, the so-called shadow docket. But this comes down on the shadow docket, right? The court is not in session until the first Monday of October. So this comes by way, this sort of circuitous, uh, very complicated procedure in the Texas court. There's a, a Texas lower court. The Texas appeal court stops the Texas lower court. There's no opinion. There's no record here. It comes in the middle of the night, uh, and the court decides it in the middle of the night. So I think it's just important to frame it as this is not the way the court usually does business. This mm-hmm. was an emergency injunction. And as a consequence, the order that we got, I guess I should say also parenthetically, the uptick in shadow docket orders that we've seen in particularly the last four years of the Trump administration, where more and more and more issues are being resolved on these late-at-night unsigned orders, we're not always sure even what the vote is. We don't know who authored the opinions. That's been a real concern. So this comes as a shadow docket order. It's a page and a half. Um, We don't know who authored it. And all we know is that, as you said, the five conservative uh, justices uh, signed off on it. And we know that largely because we have four dissents. Mm. uh, And the dissents come from the three more liberal justices. And surprisingly, in some ways, Chief Justice John Roberts, all four of those dissenters write dissents. But the page and a half essentially is one paragraph saying, as you noted, we have no opinion here on the merits of uh, abortion. The constitutional question is not before us. We're just not going to enjoin this law from going into effect because it's not clear to us that somebody can be sued and that somebody would prevail at trial. Mm. So I want to talk a little about Chief Justice John Roberts, who I think uh, people are increasingly seeing as kind of the pivot point on this court. Although in in this case, I think we we saw uh, pretty dramatically how even his hesitance on on things is is not going to be enough to stop uh, the conservative majority of the court because they do have uh, at least nominally six six votes. But but talk about his dissent here and whether that has importance uh, going forward as this case gets considered more on the merits. Right. So uh, you'll remember like a year ago when I Robert's court because he was the pivot, right? Mm-hmm. He became the person, particularly over the summer, last summer, when there was a bunch of chat dockets. COVID orders, right, about Mm -hmm. lifting uh, 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 orders around churches and other 
uh, uh, religious groups that were saying they did not want to be subject to uh, limits. And it was Roberts voting with the four liberals to say, we're going to leave those orders in place, even if it violates uh, religious liberty, because uh, we want to defer to uh, state agencies about uh, public health, right? So he was, in fact, the person who jumps over and votes with the four liberals time and time again, uh, most uh, importantly for our purposes in this conversation, in a big abortion case mm-hmm. uh, that came down at the end of last term, where he uh, voted with the liberals uh, to bat away a Louisiana abortion law. So what changed? What changed is that uh, just around this time last year, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and was swiftly replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. And I think under your question, the point is that he is no longer the fifth anything. Right. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't matter anymore. I think we are having a... It doesn't matter. And so in a strange sense, the sort of subtext of what happened at the court in the last year is it stopped being the John Roberts court, Hmm. and it actually became the Brett Kavanaugh court. If you look at all of the numbers at the end of last term, it was Brett Kavanaugh that was a swing justice. And so what you're going to see is when the swing justice at the current court is one of the sort of 10 most conservative jurists that we've had on the court in the last 100 years. It tells you that John Roberts voting with the left wing of the court uh, is a really, really profound shift to the right. And so when John Roberts throws in with the liberals, as he did in this particular case, it almost doesn't matter. Um, his dissent in this case, it's worth saying, is not a, a pro-abortion dissent. So he's not like Sonia Sotomayor or Stephen Breyer, who all dissent on the merits of what has how Roe was just eviscerated in Texas. His is a, a dissent that says it is unseemly and improper to decide a case of this magnitude like this on the shadow docket, and that we should have enjoined the Texas law while this case went to trial. Uh, this is not the way it's done. And so to be really clear, John Roberts is not a friend of abortion. He has historically always voted uh, to uphold abortion restrictions, mm-hmm. except for that one time last year where he voted with the liberals because the court was being overruled from below. But he is not a friend of abortion. What he is very much is a proceduralist and an institutionalist, and he felt that the court looked shoddy and was doing shoddy work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you think about this Texas abortion law, about the Supreme Court's response to that law, and uh, where you think we're headed with the decades-long debate in this country uh, about reproductive rights uh, and their protections. Uh, let's go to Elena in Detroit. Uh, Elena, what's on your mind? Yes. Hey, Elena, go ahead. Hi, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, I just wanted to say that I haven't heard much about what this does to families, what what this will wreak upon family members and community members who are in a position of something like fascism, of reporting on each other, hmm. as well as the fact that I want to just clarify, women get abortions. This is an attack on women. Men can do anything they want now as far as 
reporting them as far as forcing them to have children. I also want to say that it was in detention that women from Mexico and Central America were sterilized by this same administration. Mm. Mm. So reproductive rights goes both ways. But the idea of what families are going to be going through, this is going to tear the state apart. And I just wanted to mention that there will be long-lasting damage among the community. I think that's a really important uh, an interesting point to raise, Elena. I'm glad you called and and did so. Uh, Dahlia, talk a little about this provision of the law. This this uh, I don't know how you describe it. Maybe snitching provision uh, in the law that that encourages private citizens to turn each other in, uh, not only over whether they're seeking reproductive rights, but but whether they're even aiding somebody in uh, seeking reproductive rights. The history of that in this country, by the way, is pretty awful. Uh, I, I'm, I am reminded a little of the fugitive slave laws uh, by this. But, but talk about the, the effect that that kind of dynamic has on, on communities like Elena's raising. Well, there's, Elena's question is, I think, precisely the correct one, and it's the one that has not had nearly enough attention, I think, in the media this week. And I just want to illuminate there's two sides of this coin about families. It's not just that you are now conscripting family members to rat out other family members, right? The mom who drives her daughter to a clinic is now on the hook. Uh, you know, if you tell your sister that you're getting in an Uber to go to a clinic, your sister, whether or not she, uh, uh, quote unquote, aids and abets you, you know, the fact that she knows on the hook. So it's exactly correct that this rips families apart. It pits family members against family members. But the other side of the same coin that is equally terrifying, but it's worth just in this context of family um, surfacing, is the ways in which this law has no exceptions for rape and incest. Mm. What that means is if your stepfather, if your brother, if your grandfather is molesting you, they now have immense power over you. They, and this is really one of the fears that women's groups have had all along, is that your husband, your boyfriend, uh, the person in your family who's molesting you, now has immense leverage over you and over people who want to support you. And so not just that it's tearing families apart because it's pitting them against each other, but almost more terrifying is abusers and then giving their abusers a kind of veto power to terrorize them that we have never, ever seen. As you're saying, Stephen, since the, the Fugitive Slave Act, since we were allowing people uh, to get bounties for turning one another in. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just that it's so profoundly dangerous on both of those um, sides of the spectrum in terms of disruption of families, but also, you know, the notion that you could, the state cannot lawfully prevent you from having an abortion, but the state can deputize people to turn you in. Is so, and this is Justice Breyer's uh, dissent in the order uh, from the other day. But that the state can have you do this unlawful action is so completely shocking. And um, my podcast this morning, Amicus, uh, Michelle Goodwin made exactly the point that you just made, which is this harkens back to the Fugitive Slave Act. Mm. This harkens back 
to the founding where there were economic rewards for controlling bodies and their enslavement and the idea that we are reverting to this re- Yeah, uh, Dahlia, we're having a little... They have the autonomy to do, and you get money, re- yeah. remunerated with money. This is not a chapter of the founding that we should be reinstating. Yeah, yeah. no, it's it's very frightening. Uh, Dahlia, just a, a note, we're having a little bit of a problem with your connection, so you're in and out, but we definitely got the gist of what uh, <laughs> of what you were saying there. Um, let's get one more call in before uh, we have to... To end the program, uh, Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, what's on your mind? Uh, hi, Stephen. Can you hear me? I can. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Right. I just think that the, um, as some of the guests have said, that the laws are about much more than access to safe and legal abortion. I think of it um, really as putting girls and women back in their place mm. to be property of men, to be, you know, controlled and brutalized in whatever way a man that's not a, you know, doesn't see the worth of women would yeah. do. Yeah. Um, and that we still don't have the Equal Rights Amendment passed. We don't have enough states to ratify it. So I think that's all linked in. Yeah. Uh, Melissa, I, I think a lot of people um, absolutely feel feel the same way. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick, before we, we end, um, predictions on on the kind of litigation that we'll see come out of this. Uh, obviously, there's going to be challenges to the law. I imagine that, that some of the, 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 the civil side of this will, will produce some unexpected outcomes. I mean, it, it is such an odd, uh, it is such an odd thing to, to add in the law. We've only got about 30 seconds, but uh, talk about what you think we'll see. Right now, we're just seeing clinics that are not providing abortions after six weeks Mm -hmm. because they are terrified of the litigation. And in some sense, that's the real tragedy, that they've been chilled out of doing what they are constitutionally able to do just because of the threat of lawsuits. And so I'm sure we'll see somebody break the law and litigation that follows. But in the interim, the law is doing exactly what it was intended to do, which is isolate women and stop clinics from offering services. Yeah. Wow. Okay, uh, Dahlia Lithwick of uh, Slate, always great to have you here with us to help think these issues through. Thanks so much for joining us. Sorry for the tech problems, and thank you for having me. <laughs> no, that's okay. All right, uh, that's going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when WDET continues to explore the U.S. Constitution with a Civics 101 special that asks, is it constitutional for the government to remove and relocate American citizens to remote camps without due process of law? In 1944, Supreme Court said yes. The stories of Japanese-American internment during World War II and the Supreme Court case that challenged it, that's Monday here, uh, WDET. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.